first transmedia. <clears throat> Our audience may or may not be familiar with that as a concept. Um, so I wanna make sure that I'm understanding it for them. Um, so this really is any layering of multimedia that you use to then convey a narrative. On this episode, I am so happy to have a conversation with Ashlyn Sparrow. Ashlyn Sparrow is an independent game designer. Her work focuses on creating socially impactful games and health-focused app interventions. In 2013, Ashlyn was the Learning Technology Director of the Game Changer Chicago Design Lab at the University of Chicago, devoted to creating game-based health interventions supported by funding from the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. During her tenure, she designed and led the production of The Source, Seed, Hexacago Health Academy, Bystander, and Prognosis. In 2018, she became the assistant director of the Weston Game Lab at the Media Arts, Data, and Design Center at the University of Chicago, where she teaches undergraduate, graduate, and K-12 students how to design their own games while uncovering the socio-political implications of their designs. Through Weston Game Lab, she's developed a series of alternate reality games, including Indicade award-winning game Terrarium, A Labyrinth, and Echo. In addition to her work at Weston Game Lab, she works as a game designer and programmer in Chicago, having worked on Oni Fighter Yasuki for Waking Oni Games. Her website is ashlandsparrow.com. And in our conversation, we get to explore some of the lessons that she took from working on games like The Source and Hexacago Health Academy uh, and Bystander, and where she's seeing those lessons show up in her more recent theater alternate reality games, Terrarium, A Labyrinth, and Echo. So I'd love to hear kind of where Ashlyn is right now and, and a little bit about your journey into gaming and kind of what your professional identity is, because all of our guests have different ones. Absolutely. Um, so I have always been uh, a gamer, kind of a hardcore gamer myself, um, primarily playing a lot of video games. But as I went to college and went to grad school, played a lot of board games and card games. Um, and while my background's in information technology and my master's is in entertainment technology, I was really interested in thinking about how games could be used for educational purposes or like serious purposes, right? Trying to think about our uh, large scale social issues. Um, since I do find that games are a really interesting space where you can think through a lot of things mechanically through a game. Um, and they just provide that space and that agency to try on different strategies and to think through different ideologies that you usually don't have a safe space to do that in the real world. Um, and so, you know, after I, my master's program, I actually, I ended up at UChicago and I ended up being at the Game Changer Chicago Design Lab um, with Dr. Melissa Gilliam, Dr. Patrick Jagoda, um, and working on public health games focused around sexual reproductive health, thinking about how we can use games to change attitudes and behaviors. So we've created a lot of board games and card games around um, smoking uh, cessation, um, intro, an introduction to STEM education, primarily with black and brown students in the South and West sides of Chicago. And I did that for about five years and I was the second director of the game lab. Um, and so I work really closely with Patrick Jagoda nowadays and actually, um, after about five years, what um, I was really looking at was trying to find other um, spaces where games could actually be. Like, I loved the fact that we were working on public health, but as the director, I would then have to decline opportunities at, for instance, the Adler Planetarium or the Shed Aquarium, um, where I would have loved to make games around space or games around my marine biology, but it didn't fit within the portfolio of work. And I had to, you know, do the director thing and say no, because that didn't fit within our portfolio. Um, fortunately, uh, Patrick at the same time was looking for other spaces to start bringing 
games to campus and making U Chicago a hub. Um, and so together, along with the Weston family, um, we were able to actually start the Weston Game Lab. And so we started this in 2018, 2019, um, where I'm the assistant director and he's the, uh, the faculty director. And now we're working on games, again, still with that social, uh, social justice uh, slant, but we're now able to connect with all departments at UChicago with no questions uh, whatsoever, because we can now just think about games as a medium, as opposed to having to focus on a very specific topic. Uh, but that being said, that means I actually, even though my title is assistant director, I have to wear many hats uh, because it's a large, wide open space um, where we actually, in the before times, before COVID, had quite a few students in the space from all over, from computer science, from econ, from history, from theater arts and performance, just all in the space. And that meant that I would start putting on programs for people to start building language with each other, specifically yeah. around games, um, connecting them to other faculty at other universities who are working on games, or even to independent game developers who are in this space. Um, and I myself am an independent game developer, and I work closely with uh, other developers as well. So that's kind of what I do in my direction of how I got there. Um, it's a great space and I'm hoping that people will be able to come and visit us in the fall, you know, if everyone's vaccinated appropriately and all that good stuff. Has that work continued in the remote existence that you've navigated and how have you made that work? Absolutely. So we had been thinking for a while about how we would do an how we would take the community and the culture that we started to build at the game lab um, and put it online. Uh, just a little bit of culture about you, Chicago. Uh, the tagline that administration hates is that this is the place where fun comes to die. Like students <laughs> laugh about it. And I, as game developer and person who went to public state school, I went to Penn State, I'm like, are you all okay? Like, do you, what, what's happening here? Um, and it's a very theoretical school, right? So focus on the theory, less about practice, but this space is supposed to be about practice and critical making. Um, so in about a year, we managed to get a bunch of people in the space working and we were thinking, well, how do we turn this to an online space? COVID did happen. And so we thought, okay, well, maybe this is a, a, a moment for us to actually start thinking about Discord and actually start thinking about Twitch and using this as the space where we will um, you know, play games together and stream it out to our community. Maybe we can have uh, professionals come in and give talks and again, stream it out. So we have started to move in that space. We've started to boost up our social media because of it um, to really keep people connected to our space. Well, as you know, Traumaturgy as a podcast is trying to bring together that um, connection between performing arts, theater, and trauma. And, and resilience is really the interest that I have in that narrative and that discussion. I'm curious, and I'm aware that, you know, part of the motivation in, in reaching back out to you was my memory of the bystander game, which I experienced, I don't know if I'm using the right language to describe it, but I experienced it as a narrative game, a digital narrative game that um, a player could navigate and learn different ways of responding to someone who's disclosing a potential sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, but what did what do you call it? <laughs> How do you describe that game? Um, and then I'd love to talk from there uh, into sort of what lessons you took from developing that game and, and ways that you see it maybe showing up in some of the more theater oriented game work that you're doing. Absolutely. So Bystander was one of the first digital games that we worked on at the Game Changer Chicago Design Lab. Um, we would also describe it as a narrative focused, narrative based game. Um, the idea that we had is that if games usually have a character that you play with, um, they're usually viewed as heroes, right? You're the hero and you're going on a quest. Well, you know, we do want people uh, when they 
see sexual harassment happen to view themselves as people who can actually take charge and to that they have the agency to make social change. However, we wanted to make sure that you're playing as different people who would also be able to experience different um, different issues, whether that is partner on partner sexual violence or male on male sexual violence, or even just things at a party, right? So we needed to provide different ways that players would be able to en enact in the story. Um, and so, you know, as we were designing this, we we're like, okay, well, we need to have multiple characters, right? We can't necessarily just have one voice. One voice would actually be detrimental to the point that we're trying to make if this is actually a community issue that everyone in a community can do their part. We need to actually show what a community looks like. Uh, so that was kind of, that's how we would describe it. Um, and, you know, of course, each of the sections that we uh, have in the game has different mechanics to it. So for instance, uh, the partner on partner sexual violence uh, scenario, it's just a conversation between two people. And so that game has a kind of dialogue heavy conversation where the, you know, your friend is telling you about what happened between her and her boyfriend. And she's actually, uh, you know, repeating rape myths, right? Oh, maybe it's what I'm wearing, or maybe it's because he brought bought me this bracelet, like, you know, maybe I'm the problem. And your goal as a friend is to listen, trust, believe your friend, but also to start dispelling rape myths. So if you hear it, how will you respond to that? And how could you help your friend if you're going through this uh, scenario? Another scenario we had is a party scenario where you're noticing a, a person uh, pouring way too much alcohol um, into a girl's drink. And actually he shouldn't even be putting alcohol in it because she didn't even want alcohol at all. And so like you're watching him do this and you're talking to your friends, pointing this out. It operates like a point and click game because we want you to feel as though you're in a party, right? Like this is like, cool, you can change the music, you can talk to your friends, you can eat pizza if you want to, but also you should be aware of what's happening in your surroundings. And then of course, you'll have to confront that person. But again, we always provide multiple strategies as to how you'd like to confront a person. Do you wanna to talk to them directly? Do you wanna call someone? Do you wanna have a group of your friends come in? It's really up to you. Um, and because this was our first digital game, at Game Changer, you know, I think many labs operate like this nowadays, but back in 2014, we had public health researchers in the space, but I don't know too many labs who had game designers who were like also a part of the team. People who are like, like their, their degrees are in game design, but they don't have any training in public health, no knowledge about logic models. And in fact, when me and a couple of game designers, when we're talking about logic models, they're like, these are like really bad flow charts. Like, where do you start? Like what, what's happening here, right? Like that's the cultural divide that we're dealing with in terms of game designers and researchers. So for us, in terms of the development, it was really hard because none of us knew how to talk to one another. Researchers are, you know, wanting the learning objectives to come first, which absolutely makes sense, right? This is a grant funded project and uh, government officials and foundations want results. They want the impact numbers. Um, and then for us as game developers, knowing how people typically play games, it's less for us about putting the learning objectives first, but providing a context for people to try a bunch of things and figure things out for them. They'll kind of start to take away what they want to learn um, or how they should engage and not to say no to those learning objectives, but to really embed those so that it doesn't feel like an educational game. It just feels like a game where you're hanging out at a party or you're talking to a person and then something happens. And then it's about figuring out, wait, wait, is she talking about what we think she's talking about, right? Um, so lots of, uh, honestly, lots of arguments, lots of pushback, lots of reading journal articles from public health organizations and learning about what the heck logic models even are and getting researchers to play video games to understand, well, this is how people think about them um, in the space. Uh, the game was in development for about a good year and a half. Um, and as and it actually came to a point where we needed to make it modular, not only just to help 
with our learning objectives, but it actually meant that we could create a smaller, more contained experience, which led to shorter, more uh, in-depth conversations with researchers and game developers so that we could get on the same page and then also play test it to see if it's engaging and asking the right questions. And also, does it even have the learning content that we need it to have? Um, so that's how it, we even led up to the modular design of the game. It was a really, it's a really interesting process. I love to talk about it a lot because I think people who are interested in the space are like, educational game design, it's so easy, so fun. And it's, and it's really not, it's really, people don't talk about the frustrations enough and how to move forward with it. This semester, our lab has been very lucky to have my colleague, Suzanne, my co-host, um, a student from her theater department at York College of Pennsylvania. And that's, that's what Teo has been bringing to the lab is a vocabulary of, of devised work, a vocabulary around production, and even thinking through um, how to creatively collaborate, right? And it's, you know, that interdisciplinary nature, the, the different languages that creators use, you know, I'm curious is, as the as the lab matured, as your own career has matured, and as you've moved now into games with theater, what are you taking from that early lesson around bystander? And kind of what direction did that lead you in as you started these other projects? Absolutely. So one thing that I took from uh, that interaction was actually needing to move a little bit slower, like everything is so fast paced, but it's actually about taking things just a bit slower, um, really taking the time to understand what another person is trying to say. Um, and, you know, at no point was anyone wrong about anything. In actuality, we're, we're all right, right? There, there's no, like, in my opinion, no one objective truth. There are multiple truths that are happening here. And so it's really about for me, figuring out what is what are the researchers trying to say? What is it that they ultimately want? How can I start matching my language to them so that they understand it better, right? And so then I can, it makes me kind of the conduit, the in-between, right? Where I now understand all the different parties that are talking, and then I can start translating to other people because we're actually all on the same page and we all each bring our unique perspective in order to make you know, this experience the best that it can possibly be. Uh, at the time, we didn't have any folks in theater. It was mainly just the game designers who, game designers take their language from other games, um, but a lot of the language seems to actually derive from cinema, um, especially because it's so visual, right? So when we think about narrative and storytelling, it's still from this cinematic perspective, less about pulling from books, right? Unless you're making a visual novel. Um, and, and, and so theater hasn't been the space, especially when we were at game, when I was at Game Changer, the space to actually start drawing from, which actually makes even more sense thinking about the interactive performances that are happening there, not only with your audience, but you as an actor. And if your player is an actor in this experience as well, there's so much uh, connection. Um, but I basically just took a lot of time to understand what the heck are you even saying? Oh, when you say bug, it's different from a bug for me because bugs are game breaking. Uh, what you're talking about is something a little bit different. You're saying that the learning objectives are not working out, right? The content isn't there. Ah, you're trying to relate to me, but then by using this particular language, you actually confuse me, but I see what you're trying to say. Giving people the benefit of the doubt will get you far. Um, but the cool thing about transitioning over to the Western Game Lab is then again, it allows allowed us to start connecting to other departments. And there is a theater arts and performance study uh, uh, major here at UChicago. And so outside of my good collaborator, Patrick Jagoda, uh, we've actually started working with Heidi Coleman, who's in theater arts and performance. And with her, along with Mark Downey, who's in cinema media studies and Kristen Schilt, who is in sociology, we started to work towards uh, these uh, games called alternate reality games. They're these transmedia experiences where you're telling a narrative over multiple mediums. Um, so things like Discord and Twitter or real life where there's a poster in a physical space. 
And it starts to blend the real world and the game space intuitively together, where characters, you play as a character, you play as yourself who believes that this kind of weirdness is actually happening. And the people that you're talking to are non-player characters, but they're played by real people, real actors, and you can have real conversations with them. And the types of affordances that that has actually led to has been phenomenal um, because we can respond to people in real time in ways that computers and artificial intelligence are just not there yet. Exactly what a transmedia game is, it's that you can use any medium that exists in the real world becomes a storytelling space, right? And so you could, for the source in particular, we the narrative was around a young girl who uh, was searching for her father um, and he left her this kind of puzzle box. Um, and in order for her to solve these puzzles and try and figure out where he went and why he left, um, she needed to crowdsource this to some students. And because she is you know, a high school student in the South Side of Chicago, why not source it out to other South Side youth? Um, and so, you know, her mother views that uh, they live in kind of a dangerous neighborhood, so she's not allowed to just hang out and play outside. So she decided to do this all through a web series. Um, so she recorded videos, she posted them to YouTube, and that's how she told the story of who she is and uh, how we as game designers were able to, you know, get information across. We also created uh, Facebook profiles for each of these characters. So you could also interact with them on Facebook if you wanted to. And, you know, we then had actual high school students come to UChicago campus. And, you know, they would watch this video of Adia that was our main character. And then, you know, we copied all of the things that were in the puzzle box that her father left her. And we had the students try and figure out where did she go? Where did he go? Why did he leave? Um, and that, that's exactly what the transmedia kind of space is. And then again, it provides this way of us to start like slipping in like, well, this is an intro to science, tech, engineering, and math. You, right now you're playing this game that her father left, um, but you're also learning about pandemics. You're also learning about how to spend government funding, right? All these tiny little quests, all the learning objectives that we want are embedded within the game. In your current projects with the theater arts department, how are you building that language? Is it easier or harder to build with your theater professionals? And, and how are you supporting the creative performing contributions to the game? Absolutely. So it's a bit easier uh, nowadays. Um, one, Heidi Coleman, uh, she is totally a gamer. So she plays a lot of games. So we were actually already to start kind of at the same level of, oh, you understand the language of games. And because I've now took the time to understand the language of theater, that we're kind of more so on the same page, or we're like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. Can we use this word to represent what we're talking about here? Like a designer means something very specific in theater, and it means something very specific in game design. They are not the same. So how can we qualify those statements a bit more? Or what is a production manager? There are no production managers in game dev. There are only production managers in theater. What does that mean? Oh, we call those producers. Oh, that's the same. Totally fine, right? So we just kind of stop and just say, define your terms. Cool, this is our language. And any new person who comes into the space will, will just tell people, this is what we mean, keep it moving. Um, but a lot of the games that we're working on now in the space, we're still doing alternate reality games, um, but at a larger scale um, and also with like a higher production quality. So we've started, especially um, given the pandemic and also given climate change and thinking about how it might be difficult for people to get to campus, um, we've actually started to integrate Twitch into our game experiences and then think about like, how can we actually play around with the interaction between a live individual and a large audience? Um, how can we embed, uh, you know, how do we embed learning objectives into that? How do we then think about set design 
in a way that becomes kind of a game space, right? So we've started, the Western Game Lab has created a shadow organization as we call it, it's not real, but we are the forecast lab. Anytime we create an alternate reality game, we go by the forecast lab, which is a group of youth Chicago faculty and staff dedicated to uh, understanding the future. We tend to have weird communications from the future and the future will then help us figure out what are some of the current issues that we're dealing with and how do we actually prevent these bad futures from coming to be. Um, so one game, for instance, that we created is called Terrarium. This is a game focused around climate change uh, and climate change broadly, meaning like actual climate change, the heating of the earth and you know how we need to recycle and all this other good stuff. But we're also thinking about climate in terms of like social culture, right? What does it mean when the world we live in might have to deal with overpopulation or over-policing or a nuclear apocalypse, right? We're always on the, the edge of destruction. So how do we actually fix what we're doing today to make sure that those futures don't happen? We structured this very much like uh, an escape room, but we called it a reverse escape room, where instead in your typical escape room, you are trapped in a room and you're trying to figure out how to escape. We had our live actor in the room on Twitch broadcasting out and our players would then have to help that person escape this room. They would have to use all the tools that are in the environment. So set design became even more important here to help uncover the mystery of why this person is even in this room. What's happening on the outside? What's going on in your society? How bad is it? What are the things that led to that? How can we in at that time, 2019, stop those things from happening? And so that was kind of how it was structured. And we had our players in the real world form teams to really start thinking about how they can help this person in the future, but also start to learn all of the different aspects of climate change, not even from just a scientific perspective, but even from an artistic perspective, from a theater perspective, what performances could you create to start changing people's minds? What art pieces could you create? Could you recycle trash and actually use that as a form of art? Um, and, and how can that work even in terms of uh, science where like, or how do you study these rocks? How do you study you know, our plant life to all kind of think through climate change more broadly in conjunction to theater and performance? In scripting that game, there, there, you mentioned earlier that you know, the task before you now is how do you scale and increase the production value? So I'm envisioning um you know some improv skill but but i would imagine because the actor has to respond to the players right and, and kind of um in a way that continues engaging and that isn't just i'm controlling a puppet right um how how did that function and and was it a single actor were there multiple actors that you kind of cast in that do you use that language of casting <laughs> in this Absolutely. context yeah Absolutely. So we, any major NPC, as we call them, that you will be interacting with, non-player character, um, that you'll be interacting with, we cast them. Um, because these are some of the bigger roles that will, that our players will be interacting with over a large period of time, right? Um, and on top of that, just thinking about the main characters, there are a bunch of side characters. Every single game designer on the team became a non-player character. And we had to just play as a version of ourselves to some capacity. It's actually easier that way to not necessarily play as some like super fictitious character, but play as some version of yourself, but with a slightly different name. Um, because of how long you'll be engaging in the process, sometimes months at a time, you don't necessarily want, it, it's hard to kind of stay in character for that long, um, what we found. So if you play as some version of yourself, some extreme version, it's much easier to always go back to something. Um, so we cast all our characters for Terrarium. We had four main characters that we, uh, well, three main characters that we casted um, and, then the last one, we had a bunch of interns with paper bags on their head to represent overpopulation. So you didn't actually see who the main characters were at the time. Um, 
but we have a very intensive uh, script writing process. Actually, the uh, script for the overall game and the narrative, and even thinking about what people are saying and the narrative beats, a good 150 some pages, um, but also giving people enough lore to respond in any way that they think is best. Um, if, and the great thing about an alternate reality game is that if you don't know something, you can actually just say, I don't know. It drives players crazy. They're like, what do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to know everything. And then that gets them to kind of speculate and think about their own, like their other solutions uh, to, the, to the issue at hand, which allows us as game developers to actually look at a problem and say like, okay, what are they thinking? Cause you know, we're hanging out in the same discord channels that they are or hanging out in the same Facebook groups as they are because we've created these shill characters uh, who are acting as students being like, we're trying to help solve this mystery as well, but we're actually monitoring their communication so that we can then say, okay, uh, they're really thinking that the solution is X. Let's just go ahead and make the solution X. And that will make them so happy as a team, right? Uh, so that, you know, it's, the, it's that, it's, that kind of improv that we're doing. Like, if you don't know something and you can't think of an answer, just say, I don't know, totally fine. We will fix everything in post, right? Or in the next iteration. And thinking about, you know, for a performer, um, you know, the measure is the performance. The measure is that moment. And you want your audience to have something they're leaving with, um, but, you know, hopefully you get to perform again and get another shot at it, right? What is that looking like in your space? And how does that, um, that artistic need that a performer has, how are you seeing that get met in your space? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, right? Like if in maybe a traditional uh, performance that you might have that same performance happen multiple times throughout a week, a month, etc. Maybe that kind of same performance. So if one performance, the uh, actor doesn't feel that great about it, they can, there's always next time, right? There's always maybe the next day or maybe even a few hours from now if that was the afternoon uh, performance. Um, alternate reality games are very ephemeral. Uh, when we have our, our performance, that's kind of, it. Um, there might be multiple performances throughout a week, but they're not necessarily the exact same thing. Uh, and the reason for that is the story kind of progresses as fast as the players are solving a particular problem. So if your players are stuck, then your role becomes to support the character of uh, the players uh, in solving the puzzle. You as character do know the solution, so you can drop hints because we make sure to tell them, but that your role becomes support role, right? If players are tr treating uh, our actor like an actual like video game character, hey, why don't you just run and kick the door? You can push back on that and say like, I can't just go and kick the door, right? That might only happen based on the types of players that are in the room at the time. Um, so, so it's interesting, right? It's this moment of like, you gotta give it your all right then and there because after this, it doesn't exist anymore. In fact, many people, after I talk about our ultimate reality games, are like, how can I go and play it? And I'm like, you can't because it was, you know, at this particular time, this particular place with these particular groups of people. And even if we were to create, recreate the experience for another group of people, the game would be completely different because of who's playing and because what we're talking about, right? So, you know, I am usually not the person that the main actor in the space, but for me, it just means, hey, if I don't get it right this time, totally fine. I, you know, have multiple opportunities to play around with the next interaction with players, even if, right, because it doesn't exist anymore. And I can take this learning that this, uh, this moment and apply it to the next alternate reality game. In these performances, which are intended to create change, intended to 
um, at least leave an audience with a direction they can go. What is that like for the performer? What is that like for the team playing with the performer? Absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the topics that we're dealing with are are hard when you really start to think about it, right? If we start to, you know, remove away some of the maybe funny haha of you have to solve this puzzle to, you know, help this person like escape the room. Why do they have retrograde amnesia? Things like that. But like when you start to dig into the meat of the situation, right? The fact that in 2049 for, you know, one of our characters, like the, the world is in a really bad shape, right? A lot of coastal cities do not exist anymore. A lot of the food um, that we're used to eating does not exist anymore, right? Like, how do you actually deal with that? And, you know, those are some of the conversations that people ended up having, not only in the Discord channels, but also when talking to the actors, like, you know, you're gonna have to portray a sense of urgency, a sense of sadness, right? Like, what are the things that you love right now? Imagine that they do not exist 30 years from now, right? They just do not exist, right? Who in this future might have died because of where you lived, right? Uh, we've learned that Chicago is actually in a very good spot considering that we have Lake Michigan for climate change, uh, which would then mean hypothetically, there could be a rush to the Midwest, right? This becomes like this safe haven. How does that affect your performance, right? You're also gonna be in this room, like in this literal room for like a good 30, 40 minutes, right? Nonstop interacting with, the, with these players who are asking you a series of questions who over time are realizing the weight of the situation, right? And you're gonna have to play with that. Um, we had one character who actually didn't speak at all. Uh, the only thing that she could do was use her, her body movements. Um, and we then relied primarily on text so that we could then also kind of control, again, that kind of the gravity of it, because in that scenario, we were talking about nuclear apocalypse. And so if you're dealing with nuclear apocalypse and the people that you love, again, they're, they're gone. You're basically the only one left. You are refusing to talk. You have taken this vow of silence, but you're willing to use your words and text to describe the situation. And now we can play around with actual text and word crafting, right? And playing around with poetry and, and language there and getting people to reflect back on well, you know, if this happened to you, what are the things that you would miss, right? And again, you're trapped in this room. You're in all this costuming with these lights in a very particular way with people like, there are other, like three other people in this tiny room watching you to make sure that this goes off really, really well. I would be so stressed to be the actual actor. This is why I'm a game designer. <laughs> Um, Ashlyn, I really appreciate your time. I want to um, thank you so much for joining our podcast. I, I'm so sorry that Suzanne wasn't able to be a part of it. And um, we're just so grateful for the work that you're putting out into the world and the different ways that you're showing it can be done. Um, I'd love to, to end on a question that's kind of heavy. And, and because I know that this conversation might um, get to be in conversation on our episode with Brendan, I want to speak a little bit to something that uh, I think our audience of performers um, you know, might be navigating. Brendan raised a really interesting point in his interview about um, online harassment and mm -hmm. the, the norming that a lot of his yes. work has to take in utilizing a medium which for, for him is you know online and gaming um, and and how theater has provided a norming for that space that that's something that he uses really heavily and intentionally to provide some norms around and I'm just curious I know you and I have talked about being minority women in gaming before and you know that um, and he was able to share you know just as a white man what that is like um, but I'm curious sort of how is that looking 
and does it mean anything different in these contexts where we have Discord and Twitch and audiences interacting in real time with a, an actor and then going away, right? Um, how is that care and concern and norm setting happening or not happening? And Absolutely. So that's a really interesting question. Um, uh, it's, I mean, honestly, it's one of the reasons why I don't find myself playing a lot of online games because of the harassment. And it's even based off of like, you can create a character with dark skin and automatically all of a sudden name calling just happens. It's gotten to a point where, um, you know, I follow a few TikTokers uh, where it, it's become a game. Like how fast can you get someone to just call you a, a, a either racial slur or something? And, you know, they've managed to get it down to like one second, right? Just by saying something like, BLM and all of a sudden like the n-word just comes out immediately right so it's a very dangerous space uh for people who look like us right um and so when this is the thing about the alternate reality games that we make is that they're at they're for a very specific community it's not as open as something like world of warcraft or final fantasy 14 is right it's open to everyone. It's not, it's actually open to a small community, uh, whether it's uh, black and Latinx students on the South side of Chicago who have to like apply to come to the program, um, who you know, were connected to specific uh, Chicago public schools to see who can come to the program. We also are working directly with undergraduate students who you know, because you Chicago gives everyone a liberal arts education, right? They have the language to understand what they should or should not be doing in these spaces, right? So it's actually a closed community. Um, and when we have these alternate reality games, we either know exactly who signed up, we know all of the team members' names, we have their you Chicago information. Um, and or if they are starting to do things um, online, uh, there is still a Twitch account associated with them. If they're going to actually type back to the actor, uh, there is a, a username kind of associated with it. Um, it has meant that we haven't had to deal with harassment when we're hanging out in their Facebook channels or on their Discord channels. We haven't seen that level of harassment. And, if people started to get really mean, what we found is that the other students will start to kind of police the space, uh, which is excellent, right? But again, you can do that with a small community where we don't have to do too much about that. Um, it got interesting though, when uh, with our newer game, Echo, where we just, we're starting to slowly move away from Twitch because uh, we're trying to integrate a live streaming platform with a website, and so that requires us to build our own tools. Um, but in this space, there's a lot of anonymity, right? Like there actually are no usernames. You could just come into the space and type, and whatever you type is like you actually don't know who is typing it. There was this moment where someone was like, oh, wow, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the N-word. And then what was great is that other people were like, don't ruin this experience for other people. Are people on here, there are young kids on this platform, you don't know who's playing. So the community once again came, came together, but it was this moment where, you know, this is something that I felt what could have happened, um, which was the moment that we start to build our own platform, we actually really need to think carefully about community guidelines and how we're actually going to, uh, for the lack of better terms, police people, right? How do we keep our communities safe knowing that we primarily, like a lot of the students who interact with us are people of color, right? And UChicago is not the most diverse, but the majority of students who play it are people of color, are LGBTQIA, are first generation students, because they really gravitate towards the types of narratives that we're producing and we need to keep them safe. Um, so, you know, people are like, it's gonna be fine. And part of me is like, I don't know. I don't know the last time you all were like, just hanging out on like Reddit and everything was fine because it's not, <laughs> right? So yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, and part of me always just wants to steer clear of it, but I know that this is a problem that we're going to have to figure out really soon. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, well, I guess we will go into that future reality together, right? Speaking mm -hmm. of forecast, right? Yep. Um, there's so much that I, I want to be able to follow up with you on. I want to just close us out though for our moment today. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I very rarely get the opportunity to think about these things. So thank you for <laughs> letting me like stop and be like, that's a great question. I've never thought of it that way. One of my favorite things is asking questions. That's it. As was mentioned in the interview with Ashlyn, we also interviewed Brendan Bradley for today's podcast. This interview is covers a wide range of subjects and we really didn't want to cut it down. Uh, we wanna make sure our listeners get the full experience of listening to Brendan talk about online theater and the work that he's doing in the VR world. So we are going to save most of his interview for our next podcast, but we are gonna give you a little bit of taste of the way Brendan thinks and what he's working on. So Brendan Bradley is a multi-award winning character actor and creator with over 100 IMDb film and television credits and over 50 million online views. Brendan's a champion of new tools and techniques to support micro-budget projects, including his upcoming A Tale Told by an Idiot, using do-it-yourself self-taught motion capture and 3D animation to modernize Shakespeare's Macbeth inside the world of a video game. He established his own lab at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts for integrating emerging technologies in live performance and supporting the next generation of multidisciplinary storytellers. And he came to my attention because during the pandemic, Brendan began releasing free tutorials and case studies for adopting streaming tools for live performance, including a customizable virtual theater that allows anyone in the world to perform for their own live virtual audience for free. So you're going to learn a lot more about Brendan uh, in our next podcast, but for now, enjoy as he talks uh, about some ideas using one of my favorite words, devise. There is a thing that I, I, I do nerdily um, that I'll just walk through with y'all, if, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so part of when I first put out the theater and started collaborating with a bunch of different people, I got approached by a group of like XR specialists, um, which is extended reality, which is the umbrella under which VR, virtual reality, AR, augmented reality, and MR, mixed reality, evolve. So probably all technologies, if you want to talk about all the R's, it's XR. Um, and we started creating what's called the Fifth Wall Forum, which was really a incubator to educate and then inform and discover and support small little projects that can happen today right now. Not looking like this isn't some Google fund that's going to like put out an app in three years. Like this is, can we stand up something right now? Um, and I led the bring your production virtual workshop, which was all about like, how do you meet this moment and just make something? Um, and to do that, I broke down producing virtual work into six key considerations. Um, and I put this under devise, which is devising new work. So it starts with the D, which is design, and thinking about how do we take all the physical stagecraft and bring it into virtual space um, and think about it as virtual assets or virtual layers. And so it's really being cognizant of our kind of traditional production pipeline of design and really allowing that to live in the space, not omitting it because we're like, well, it's going to be on Zoom, so it'll just be some boxes. Like actually think about, okay, so... How do we design for that space? And let's bring in a designer. Let's empower a costume designer to still dress the cast. Let's empower a scenic designer to still imagine the tiling of the space. Um, the second one is the E, which is environment. Because we don't have a physical structure, we now have to house the content somewhere. There's a variety of ways to do that. It's not just by default. It's us choosing a structure that best supports the story, primarily, and then also our audience and our actors. Um, and so we've talked a lot today about the future stages, which is a WebXR immersive space, browser-based, and it is VR, it's virtual reality that you can build and attend 
using a web browser, which is really cool. But there's a variety of others from just Pancake, 2D video, and Zoom, um, all the way to volumetric streaming and AR, you know, TikTok and uh, Snapchat and things like that. Um, so just really thinking about that as a choice rather than a limitation. Um, then there's virtual, the V, which is really what makes this the virtual production of the show. Instead of going like, well, it's online because everything's online, that's kind of a cop-out. Like, when I go to see a production of Hamlet, I'm going to see that production of Hamlet. Like, you should do something with it. You should make a choice. Like, let either the venue or the performers that are involved or some, you know, technique that you want to apply to the work. Maybe it's an all-movement or a mime Hamlet. That would be fascinating. Like, let it be that production. And so virtual is really about what makes this the virtual production of this show and how can you really lean into that so that it becomes part of the experience. Then is iterative, which is a big part of what we've been talking about today, which is how do you make a process that can be stood up again and again and again reliably, both for your performers and for your audience to reliably experience it. And then how do you use that iterative process to then keep building and evolving the work? So it isn't just like, okay, we got this one version of the show, but how do we scale ourselves and our creative process so we can make the next one? Uh, synchronicity is that secret sauce. Um, we all want to feel like we are present with other humans. That's what we miss in this moment. Um, and so how do we really use production elements or the show to remind people of the other audience members and of the liveness between them and the performance. This really feels like a special show happening right now. And then the final one is engagement, um, which is how do we engage with the audience before, during, and after the show, which are three really important components because we want to make people feel like they can be invited into the space, learn more about the show if they want to, onboard themselves, which is a big part of the process, even if they're just clicking a Zoom link. Um, and then during the show, how do we interact with them and engage with them? And then after the show, that's where some of our most valuable lessons come from. Kind of what is the stage door experience for you to like talk with the cast afterwards or meet with them or get a selfie or sign a program, but also how do you get feedback, really constructive feedback on what worked, what didn't, what someone would want to see from the experience or the technology moving forward. Uh, and to receive that feedback in a constructive way that you're not sitting there like being defensive but in the moment, but you're actually able to process and ingest that data so that you can, again, go back to iterating and make the next one. So that's my kind of devise six key considerations for thinking about work in this new way, which I figured I would volunteer for y'all.